Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Paul Salter. Paul is a registered dietitian, coach, and author who's passionate about helping high-achieving men and women bring awareness to what's really holding them back from achieving their sustainable weight loss goals and feeling, looking, and being the best versions of themselves, like negative self-talk, toxic thought patterns, limiting beliefs, counterproductive habits, and self-sabotaging behaviors. Since 2013, he's worked one-on-one with 1,453 men and women who have collectively lost more than 10,000 pounds and kept them off. In the episode, Paul shares exactly why people get caught up in the yo-yo dieting cycle, common nutrition and exercise mistakes clients make before working with him, his go-to breakfast, lunches, and dinners, and more. But before we hear from Paul, I want to take a minute to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is, until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Thrive doesn't have any brick-and-mortar locations, so I can conveniently order fridge, freezer, and pantry staples from the comfort of my own home with just a few quick clicks on their website or app. And since Thrive cuts out the middle people, all of their inventory is heavily discounted. When I order on Thrive versus picking things up from my local grocery store, I save at least $20 per grocery haul. And did I mention I can shop from my couch? To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. One more thing, if you've been on a weight loss roller coaster for years, trying everything from keto to Weight Watchers to exercising a ton to detoxing from sugar, but nothing has worked, I'm so happy we're connecting. Outside of hosting this podcast, I help health-motivated individuals lose weight for good without giving up carbs, eating clean 24-7, exercising a ton, or other nonsense. Unlike extreme approaches that compromise your physical and mental well-being, and suck the fun out of life, to be honest, I help you lose 5 to 50 pounds for the last time so you can start living your best life as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or connect with me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. And please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions about my programs. I always love hearing from you. All right, let's hear from Paul. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson 
certified nutrition coach, and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Paul. Thank you so, so much for joining me on the Health Investment Podcast today. Yes, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, same. I was just mentioning that I followed you on Instagram, which will share your handle with everyone, and I'm sure everyone will follow after this. But we are just super aligned in everything we talk about in terms of mindset and habits and sustainability for weight loss. And I know everybody is going to just love the nuggets of wisdom you have to share today. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And, I, and I'll say real quickly, it was really fun for me to get to connect with you there and then you know do my own deep dive research to prepare to talk with you and to finally feel like, ah, there are people out there like me who <laughs> truly want the best for their clients long term. So you as well are a breath of fresh air. Uh, yeah. I mean, there. I think, you know, when you're in our space, you just follow a lot of accounts to kind of see what's going on out there. And it mm-hmm. is just so disappointing to see so many of the fads and trends and buzzwords that, I mean, people fall victim to these things all the time. And I hope to be a space like yourself where we can provide kind of more sanity and I don't know of reprieve from the noise, if you will. (laughs) Well said. I agree. Yeah. Well, so what led you to become a registered dietitian in the first place and then specifically to help people with weight loss? Oh, it's a a unique journey. So buckle up to say the least. I will say it begins as a 16-year-old multi-sport athlete. You know, think football, lacrosse, tennis, golf, all the above except there was one problem. I stood a mere five foot two, 110 pounds, again, at the age of 16. So you can imagine I was struggling to keep up with my peers who were bigger, stronger, faster, taller than me. And this led me to become very resourceful. And my first outlet was weightlifting. You know, I, I begged my parents when I was younger to help get gym equipment into my basement so I could work out in my spare time, which, you know, as a 16-year-old kid is, is all the time. And <laughs> I, I, for whatever reason, I still to this day can't quite remember or pinpoint how, and I like to just give my mom all the credit. At around the, the age of 16, I began to realize that the food I put into my body had a drastic impact on how I felt. Specifically for me, navigating the two-a-day football practices in the 95-degree weather, 100% humidity in Maryland, I was the one able to win the sprints in the second workout of the day over everybody else, bigger, stronger, faster. Because rather than going to McDonald's or Domino's or Papa John's after the first practice, I was going home to eat or maybe I was going to Subway. So I started to have these dot connecting moments. And as I can proudly claim today six feet. So eventually I I caught up to everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, took, took this passion of weightlifting 
this mindfulness of what I was putting into my body to college with me. And I noticed within the first couple of weeks, the peer group I had established in college was always coming to me and looking to me as the go-to resource for weightlifting assistance. I was the one leading it sometimes eight to 12 people through workouts together in our university gym. And finally, someone recommended to me like, hey, you should study to become a personal trainer. That way you can get paid to do this type of thing. And as a broke college kid, this seemed like a no brainer. And I did that. And it was the single chapter in the NSCA textbook. I believe it was like chapter 13 even. It was called Sports Nutrition. And for the first time in my life, it opened my eyes to the fact that there was a a field or a discipline where athletes in particular were being extra intentional with what they were putting into their bodies when there was a, a significant why behind it. And I actually declared my major the very next week after reading this chapter because I was just so infatuated that I could find a way to get paid to help people make good food choices. And for me, you know, doing research with, you know, I guess you call them your counselors at the time, your academic advisors, I learned the difference between multiple nutrition tracks I could take. And there was one in particular, which was the dietetics major that was going to, it seemed to me at the time, my understanding was that it was going to give me more credibility. It was going to carry more weight because of the rigors required to actually obtain that credential. And that was ultimately the route I took with the the niche of sports nutrition top of mind the entire way. I just have to say hats off to you for being so young in figuring out how different foods affect your body, especially through different practices and things. I used to teach high school English and the football players would roll in with Cheetos and blue drinks from the corner store. I don't even know what they were drinking. It wasn't Gatorade. It was something (laughs) high in sugar and really disgusting looking. But I would kind of mention, you know, do you guys think you should be maybe eating something a little more nutritious? And they're like, nah, nah, that doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm a star no matter what. I can eat whatever I want. Okay. But that's pretty cool that you figured that out at a young age. Yeah. Very, very fortunate. Like I said, not really sure why. I'm just going to give my mom all the credit in the world. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she deserves it. So then in, I know you said sports nutrition. So did you initially have an interest in helping people improve their athletic performance? Like how did you get interested in helping, I think just kind of average, regular, whatever you want to say, people with weight loss? Yeah, so that my the story still continues with that initial focus on sports nutrition. And at the time, I think it's really important to share with the listeners, when I was going through this process, if you can imagine, because I have no idea what the number is, how many college campuses there are across the United States and how many professional sports teams there are across all of the major sports, there were only seven full-time sports dietitians in the whole collegiate level, in the entire nation at the time I was getting into this. So for me, realizing this, it, at first it would be challenging, like, oh my gosh, this isn't an option to do sports nutrition. What I can, what can I do? Who else can I help? But simultaneously, I also saw it as an opportunity to kind of wiggle my way in at the right time. And to be very transparent, I did get in at the right time. Things were starting to pick up. Research was coming out to show just how powerful, you know, paying attention to what you put in your body in, during, and around exercise was. So I got in at a very good time and spent the first couple of years after obtaining my RD credentials, graduating uh, with my undergrad and master's in sports nutrition, working with elite youth athletes, collegiate level athletes, professional Olympic athletes. But all throughout this time, 
I liked to be my own human guinea pig. So I developed a passion for natural bodybuilding because I came fascinated with the direct output I could achieve based on the input I had 100% control over. So I used myself as a guinea pig to apply what I was reading in classes, in books, on the internet, etc. And that's where my own particular infatuation came from because now I was seeing the true benefits in terms of how I felt, looked, performed, and acted from the food I ate. But what ultimately ended up happening to be transparent is the sports nutrition world is no joke. You're working 60, 70, if not 80 hours a week. There's not really a thing called holidays, vacations. That, <laughs> that word is, a, is a taboo. And I knew that was not what I wanted. That, that was not any part of the future I had planned and envisioned for myself. And as I had gone through my own struggles with bodybuilding and dieting, I began to recognize just how ill-prepared the everyday dieter is once he or she finishes a diet. And if you think about it, the weight loss industry, a multi-billion dollar industry, it would almost be foolish of them to help people sustain the results that they get because ultimately that means they would lose their repeat customers. And I really found that there's not much out there to help people sustain their results. And knowing how miserable I was when I struggled to with regaining weight after dieting intensely, you know, and I had all of this knowledge, I can only imagine someone who wasn't a major in dietetics and didn't have the same passion in me, but wanted to feel better was going through. And that's what really prompted a pivot in how I serve people and who I serve and ultimately opened up a new opportunity for me to go down the rabbit hole of continued education in that realm. Wow, that's awesome. I know in your current Instagram bio, I don't know about you, but I'm always kind of tweaking mine and changing yes. it. <laughs> let's try this. Let's try this. You know, why not? Uh, but you say you help yo-yo dieters transform their mindset and behaviors to maintain weight loss for good, which I love. So succinct and specific. Um, so I'd love to dissect that a bit and first tackle why do you think people get caught up in the yo-yo dieting cycle to begin with? We as a nation, as a world want results yesterday. <laughs> and with that comes lack of patience. And if we find or see something that has been validated or proven to work to get faster results, we become very intrigued and impatient. And we take these drastic measures to see and feel the results we desire. And unfortunately, what happens we, is that we take a path that is not sustainable. So although we achieve this short-term win, because you know, as human beings, we are quite resilient, we can muscle through short-term challenges that we remain committed to, even without doing the deep, the deep-rooted work and developing you know a clear why a clear long-term plan what ultimately ends up happening is sustainability is thrown out the window so when we reach said goal said feeling said weight said look we have no idea i like to say what to do on day 91 or day 31 after a challenge or a diet and because we are so ill-prepared ultimately we do what we know best which is regress to our previous eating habits our previous exercise habits our previous self-talk mental health etc and those are the same set of habits that got us to the place of unhappiness and possibly being overweight and unhealthy in the first place. Right. And social media can be so powerful and great and awesome. I mean, we're both on it, I think, a lot of the day. And you can use it for such good. But like you said, when you see something proven or even, you know, your friend's cousin pops <laughs> up on, on uh, Facebook and some post about losing 20 pounds on keto they're not probably speaking to whether or not they were able to sustain it. They're speaking to those 
sort of immediate results. And then that Mm -hmm. becomes enticing and something that maybe you give a try. But I think that's such an important point to speak to about the maintenance of it all and the sustainability. What would you say are some of the kind of most common misconceptions floating around out there about maintaining a new weight once you've lost weight? What I've really observed here is, and I think you'll agree maybe in your own dieting experience or your client's experience, is that dieting is exciting. It's sexy. We're, we're feeling better. We're, we're feeling validated. We're feeling accomplished. We're feeling confident because we are leaning out. We're seeing improvements in the mirror. On Every new low we see on the scale is another big hit of dopamine. And we're just kind of on this euphoric high that, yes, it's going to have the inevitable roller coaster ups and downs. But as a whole, dieting is really exciting. And what happens when we transition, or if if we transition, let's assume the latter, uh, to a well-thought-out and diligently planned post-diet maintenance phase is it's really boring. It (laughs) really just boils down to doing the same thing over and over. It's simple, it's consistency, and it's monotonous. And as human beings, we get bored easily, and we have a tough time embracing monotony, embracing simplicity, because we're you know we're all guilty at some point in our lives of suffering from shiny object syndrome. So we see this new way of doing things. We see this better way when all along, like. Weight loss, weight maintenance is boiled down or distilled down to a couple of really simple principles that just need to be done consistently. And right. that, that's not enough for us. It's not exciting. And they also don't sell. They're not the shiny headlines. Yes. So it's not the things people are jumping up and like, oh, yes, I want that. I want the boring stuff and the monotony forever. Sign me up. That sounds great. But that's what works. <laughs> so sadly, the, the, News headlines and the crazy new fad diets and supplements, those don't actually work if work means keeping the weight off long term, which I think we both agree it does. It's like, who cares if you can lose 10 pounds if you're going to gain it right back? Bingo. We we have this running joke in my community where, you know, when we're talking about like weight loss industry advertisements and marketing, it's like the, they'll take Bethany over here who's lost 45 pounds in 45 days. And what you don't know and see about Bethany is she gained back 50 of those pounds 30 days later. But then you take, you know, these are arbitrary names. Of course, Jennifer, who's lost 10 pounds and maintained that weight loss for five years. Like no one cares about that. Like give me yeah. what Bethany had. I want that. <laughs> Yeah, so true. So I'm sure that is then why you find it so important to work on mindset in addition to just behavior change. What are some of the most critical mindset shifts your clients need to make in order to sustain the weight loss long term? That's a fantastic question. There are three that really come to mind and make sure I go through all three and don't get us lost on a tangent. But the first one (laughs) is really redefining your relationship with food from the standpoint of no longer viewing food as good or bad. Because when we do that, we put certain foods in a box. And if we are constantly visiting the box of foods that are quote unquote guilty or bad, etc., they lead to feelings of guilt, which manifest in many self-sabotaging behaviors, thoughts, etc., which creates a vicious uh, cycle, if you will, that clearly takes us further from our goal. And the second thing I have observed is really reframing expectations. And what I mean by that is in almost any journey to accomplish a goal, no matter how prepared you are, no matter how badly you want it, 
Nine times out of 10, it's going to take you longer than you anticipated. And nine times out of 10, it's going to be harder than you expected. And if we can reframe our mindset to focus on the process and the journey, we can instantly boost our levels of happiness, fulfillment, confidence, achievement, joy, and knowledge, which is going to serve as positive motivation and reinforcement to keep going. Because inevitably, when we do hit set end destination, if we're doing it right, we're just going to set a new end destination. Mm. And then the very last one, again, there's just these simple switches that if, if, if you're prompting yourself with these questions, you, you spend the two to five minutes to think about it, they can be quite powerful. And the last one is understanding that the definition of the word diet that the weight loss industry spews left and right is not the only definition of the word diet. And what I mean by that is we all know diet as intentionally eating to lose weight, whereas the other definition that is undervalued and underutilized is simply a habitual way of eating. You don't you don't automatically assume someone who follows a plant-based diet is trying to lose weight. It just means he or she habitually eats plant-based food. So this habitual way of eating should be designed in such a way that it is you know, in line with helping you feel, look, and be your best. So if you can reframe how you view the word diet and adapt that latter definition, this is going to empower you to think long-term, to focus on those foods that truly make you feel your best, which is what we're ultimately after the whole entire time. It's not a scale number. It's not a clothing size number. It's a feeling. Mm. Yeah, that's critical. I think connecting to that feeling piece and then the second one, as you said, and kind of what we were talking about earlier is it taking longer than expected. I think if you go into it with the mindset that it's literally going to be for life, it's not going to mm -hmm. be 30 days or 90 days, the things you're doing, you have to be able to do for life, maybe not all of them, maybe not to the extent you're doing them, but these boring, you know, monotonous habits, back to those. <laughs> they, the things you do to lose weight essentially are the things you do to maintain your weight. And exactly. that never ends. It never ends. <laughs> yeah. I like to joke because you're, you're so spot on, Brooke. I like to joke that the only change that happens when you transition from a diet to a post-diet maintenance phase is simply the amount of food on your plate, your meal prep, your self-care, your exercise, all that needs to remain in place. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. I have, uh, likened it before to a marriage. Like you never expect that you just work at it and you hit a point where your marriage is perfect and it's going to be fine forever and you don't have to work at it anymore. We would think that's silly, you know, when it comes to any type of relationship that it all of a sudden stops requiring that constant care and that day in, day out connection. Yeah. But then when we look at something like, and again, it's because of all these fad diets that have programmed us to be this way, but we think it's just <laughs> going to be a short term, you know, 30 or 90 days. And we don't realize it's going to be a lifelong journey to this maintenance and the sustainability. 
Yeah, that's such an excellent analogy. And I think, you know, we can also kind of take from that analogy and applying it back to our conversation is it might even require a little bit more work or at least a little bit more higher quality work to sustain those results. You know, it's like any aspect of our life where we're leveling up, if you will, like we bust our butt to get to this next level. We can't just suddenly slack or else the only outcome we're going to experience is regressing back to the previous level. We have to work just as hard to stay there. But since we are assuming all of our listeners are growing minded people. Now we actually have to turn it up even one more notch further to continue growing. Mm. Can you speak a little bit to that, that mindset of being a growth minded person? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the book Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. Am I correct there? Yep. Yeah. So for me, that book was just such an instrumental piece in my own personal growth journey and the education I try to share with others. And it's really just making sure you are open to the idea that you are 100% in control of your results. You are so capable of making changes. You are so capable of learning new skills, building new habits, rebuilding habits you once had. And if we can continue to keep this open-mindedness that you are in control, we are going to take full ownership of the outcomes and results we currently have, but also then take full ownership of the work we're going to do to get the outcomes and results we desire. It ultimately creates a feeling of liberation. We are we are free of the stress of placing blame on everyone else, feeling like we're stuck in this fixed mindset. And when we can really make that shift, it opens up a limitless number of possibilities for growth, joy, connection, fulfillment, all the above. As you're saying that, I mentioned I used to be a teacher and it was just making me think if you're a parent of a child, let's say that's struggling with reading, you would never tell the child, oh, you're fixed at this level forever. You're going to be stuck at this level. You're never going to improve. You're never going to grow and just kind of accept that to be. I'm sure as a parent, you would do anything in your power to work with the teacher or hire a tutor and really instill a growth mindset in the child. And so it just makes me think of how we sometimes talk to ourselves versus how we view life for our children or our friends or the people we love of we ourselves may feel in this fixed mindset of, you know, I'm not good enough or I can't change or I'll never be able to grow, but we wouldn't want that for our loved ones. So again, kind of switching our language around and treating ourselves the way we'd want to treat those we love most. Such Yeah, so well said. I couldn't agree more. I'm wondering, just in terms of kind of actionable takeaways for my listeners, obviously the mindset stuff is amazing. And I love how you gave that little addition, even if, you know, you rewind and you go back to those three mindset shifts, Paul said, and even take two, like you said, two to four or five minutes, journal it out and sit with that for a bit, that could be such a game changer. What nutrition mistakes do you find most of your clients are making before working with you that could maybe set off a light bulb in a listener's mind and think, ah, that's me. I'm making that nutrition mistake right now myself. Yeah. So there's two that come to mind and I'll elaborate on both. I wanted to share them up front first. And the first one is We are guilty at some point in our journey, all of us, of not trusting our own nutrition knowledge. And I'll speak more to that in a minute. And number two kind of boils down to, or circles back to rather, how we kicked off this episode with, we are just impatient as a species. Therefore, we want our diet or weight loss results yesterday. And this leads to us making irrational, short-sighted behaviors to hit that goal, which ultimately leads to us regressing, if not gaining a little bit more weight back. 
And the first one, I, I want to actually circle back to hit the second point I discussed first. And there's a reason that we have the obesity epidemic. And it's not the, the reason that many people think. We're actually, as a, as a nation, really freaking good at dieting. We're just really freaking bad at maintaining our weight loss. And when we go full head of steam into dieting, what happens is we are forcing ourselves to drastically alter a lot of our habits, you know, our grocery routine, our meal prep routine, our social occasion routines, how we approach the workday, et cetera. That in and of itself is very stressful. Hmm. But then we add a diet on our plate, which you and I both know very well is a physiological, psychological, and emotional stressor. So when we go gung-ho into a diet like this, we have just added, you know, arbitrary number here, six stressors on our plate which is not a recipe for success. So what I always do with, I shouldn't say always, but 99.8% of the time, uh, a client comes to me wanting to lose weight. As we begin the first anywhere from four to 12 weeks in what I call a pre-diet maintenance phase. And it's at this time we work on building a foundation of healthy eating habits that truly is meant to be of service to this person for the rest of their lives. And the way we go about building this is ensuring that from day one, we are able to check three boxes. The first one is that this foundation is unique, individualized to said person. You know, if you want to eat six times per day, you want to eat three times per day, you want to follow a vegetarian diet, you want to practice intermittent fasting, doesn't matter to me. You are the one who needs to be able to eat this way and it needs to be in line with your goals, your preferences, etc. The second box we need to check is simplicity. You shouldn't need to be doing advanced calculus or feel married to my <laughs> fitness pal just to track your calories or your macros. So let's keep things simple. And then the third box we check is sustainability. And I always love to ask those I work with or anybody who's willing to listen to me is simply, is your foundation of healthy eating habits set up in a way that you could eat this way for the rest of your life? Hmm. More often than not, that's not the case. And that doesn't mean yeah. eating the same foods for the rest of your life. There's plenty of uh, wiggle room for flexibility, moderation built into this structure at its core. But the approach you take should truly be one that you could apply to the rest of your life. For the first nutrition mistake I mentioned, so I just talked about, you know, this, this irrational decision making based on wanting to get in there as quickly as possible. You know, the next thing we really need to tackle is, you know, why do I constantly outsource my nutrition knowledge? Because here's the thing, from the age of five, maybe six years old, we develop a pretty good understanding of the difference between healthy foods and not so healthy foods. We observe the difference between a moderate portion and a not so moderate portion. And mm -hmm. we learn this from a, a young age. And what we ultimately do is we're really prone to making excuses. And this is all of us. This is, this is you and I, we're, we're both guilty of this. And we ultimately just want to take the easier route and outsource our nutrition. So it becomes easier to go follow fad diet A, B, and C, keto this, paleo this, whatever it may be. But what happens is this includes typically some form of restriction that is not sustainable. It's a laundry list of to-dos, not to-dos, guidelines, rules, advanced calculus, etc. When ultimately, if we make ourselves a priority and make the time to actually draw upon the knowledge we already have as an adult in today's world, 
we have a lot of information to differentiate what we should be doing and what we shouldn't. And the, you know, the action step I like to share here for someone who is confused as to where to start, what diet's best for them to really begin improving their health, how they feel, look, and are performing is log your food for at least five days in a row, honestly, non-judgmentally. And I have a really good feeling that if you were to observe and review all five days worth of eating, you're going to be able to spot some either patterns in your behaviors or some areas, what I like to call areas for growth, where clearly donuts for breakfast every day probably isn't helping you feel your best. So now just with your own nutrition knowledge that you've accumulated as a byproduct of just being on this planet, you can start with one tiny change meant to serve you. And you can go all in on tiny change, number one, build some consistency, build some positive momentum, take that into tiny change, number two. And now we get this positive ripple effect that grows bigger and stronger, all in favor of helping you feel, look, and be the best version of yourself. I love that. Yeah. Because again, going back to diet culture, the belief that's perpetuated is that you know nothing and you must trust X diet to learn how to fuel your body. But that's such a critical point that you, we all know the basics of what we should be doing. And it's just a matter of kind of trusting, trusting instinct sometime and not thinking we have to outsource, as you said. Bingo. I think one of the most undervalued skills that we can develop is learning how to think for ourselves. It's not easy. Mm. It takes repetition like anything, but when if we can at least make it a conscious effort to try and do that, we often will probably surprise ourselves by just how quickly we can learn or how quickly we can experience a win or a result. Right. What about when clients come to you? What do you find are their biggest mistakes they're making in terms of exercise? getting too caught up in trying to find the perfect form of exercise. And the the truth is, however, there is a perfect form of exercise, whether you're trying to lose weight, maintain weight, and it's simply the form of exercise that you enjoy most because that is the kind that you're most likely to stick to. And people get caught up, you know, oh, this CrossFit, this boot camp, Orange Theory, Red Theory, Blue Theory. It's like, hey, if these leave you feeling completely broken, workout after workout, you don't like the community, you don't like the commute, you'd rather be at your home, you'd rather just walk, fantastic. Find what you like and stick with that because just the goal should just simply be some form of movement that is fun, enjoyable, and on occasion, hopefully challenging in some regard. Yeah, for sure. I think for myself too, kind of an eye-opening moment for me was when I realized I had been trying to do the exercise that worked for me for months and years that I no longer Ah. enjoyed, but I was trying to stick to it because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And then realizing, you know, there's different stages of life, different phases. Maybe for one stage, I enjoy yoga more. And for another stage, I enjoy strength training, but it's okay to kind of ebb and flow and change. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. What about, so I know nutrition, exercise, you know, movement, super important, but can you touch on other, I like kind of tackling the mistakes idea because I think a lot of people can relate to those and maybe see themselves in those Mm -hmm. in terms of sleep and stress management. What have you noticed with clients? We have way too much of one and way too little of the other. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I I think in, in, with sleep in particular, the, the, the easiest uh, 
you know, this, this message rains from my dad. He says it all the time. And it still makes me, I understand where he's coming from, but he always says, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'm like, dude, if you sleep a little more now, you'll live a little longer and you won't be dead anytime <laughs> soon, uh, which I totally get. He's got a very strong work ethic. He passed it on to me. But when it comes to sleep, you know, the, the number one mistake people are making is spending time in front of a, of a blue screen, whether it's their phone, iPad, TV, et cetera. And one of the easiest fixes somebody can make, or actually there's two related to this challenge that would drastically improve specifically sleep quality is either cutting off screen time at least 30 minutes before going to bed, preferably trending towards 60. Or if you're not ready for that habit, you can really upgrade your style and purchase blue light blocking glasses that will help deflect the blue light that those screens are emitting, which will again, help your brain kind of wind down. So you are not running around with squirrel brain, you know, as you try to lay down and go to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And from the stress management point of view, it, a lot of what really happens is I think sometimes stress management, when we're, when we're talking about that with people, and I know this is kind of how I took it for the longest time, is it seems daunting. It seems overwhelming. It seems like there's no time for it, but it's also misunderstood. What is a stress management tool or technique for me? might be actually stressful for you, vice versa applying here as well. You know, if someone kept telling me five years ago, oh, go do yoga, go meditate, I would have looked at them like they had five heads. I don't want to do any of that. That's not, that's stressful. It's a new skill. But if you told me to go walk outside or to, you know, go read a book, I would be all over that. So I think the biggest takeaway someone could have from this is simply recognizing that a stress management technique can be super, super simple. It should be very unique to that person. And ultimately, the goal is to just bring a smile or a bout of laughter or an opportunity to take a true, really deep breath to get away from, you know, the ebb and flow and craziness of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, another thing, I don't think I've ever talked about it on here because I didn't know it myself for a while. I'm not the most technologically savvy person. Uh, but when you were mentioning sleep, uh, if listeners are thinking, you know, blue light blocking glasses, yes, something to look into, but maybe they haven't arrived from Amazon yet, <laughs> something you can do even just now is look at your computers, your phone, your TV even, and often there's the option now to turn off blue light uh, all the time yes. or just for even a few hours. Um, so I've opted on my phone just to have it turned off all the time because I've just really adjusted to it mm-hmm. and people will pick up my phone and they'll go, why is it so brown? It looks so <laughs> weird. But to me, it looks normal because I'm just so used to it. And then if I look at somebody else's phone, it's like, whoa, that is so bright. And I actually can kind of see the blue tones. Um, but even my husband has done it to our TVs. Mm. Uh, so there's settings. So even, you know, maybe that and blue light blocking glasses. I don't know if that would give you kind of a double whammy, but I like, you know, meeting people where they're at. And like you're saying, if you're not ready for the 30 minutes or an hour of no screens before bed, just these tiny little tweaks that you can make can make such a big difference. Even if it's a little bit better sleep or an hour extra of sleep that adds up over time. Absolutely. That's a great point. I know one tool I actually use, you just made me think of Brooke is um, on my like web browser or my computer in general, I, I download, it's called F.Lux, L-U-X. And it basically picks up your time zone and it'll at a certain time, it'll start adjusting the intensity and brightness of your screen so that the blue light 
being emitted is, is slowly dissipating throughout the day. And by late in the evening, it's completely gone. Your screen looks yellow orangish and you're able to work on the computer late if that's something you do without the detrimental effects. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. I'll put a link to that in the show notes and check it out myself. Perfect. <laughs> I love asking this question of people who have you know, delved into nutrition research or any research. Is there anything you've changed your mind about over the years, let's say from when you first started out your dietetic journey to now? It's funny you ask that. It's a great question. I remember I just was writing a social media post on this where I found the old Microsoft Excel version of the first ever diet I created for my bodybuilding competition preparation. Um, gosh, this must have been 10, nine years ago. And it was just really funny to see the insane amount of protein I was eating for someone who was about 170 pounds at the time. I was well over 250 grams. I was eating a puny amount of carbs and fat. And that was kind of all I knew at the time. Mm. So funny to see how I have changed and grown and become more educated since then. But my own personal mistake was related to the involvement and necessity of carbohydrates before a workout. I was very much under the impression for the longest time coming from this bodybuilding lens, you know, where maintaining and building muscle is absolutely priority number one at all costs where, you know, you had to eat a significant meal before a workout. And even if you wanted to go work out in the morning first thing, like you had to get up even earlier to get appropriate amount of protein and carbs. And there was no benefits of fasted training or still training with something in your stomach, just not carbohydrates. And I've since very much changed my tune. I think there are a million and one different reasons and arguments one could make for training with or without carbohydrates before a workout. And it's going to, of course, depend on what the type, intensity, duration of the workout is. But I really began to open my mind to learning a lot more about other benefits of training low carb, for example, versus having a moderate or high carb meal. And for me, I, I do a lot of my own work now trying to improve, you know, energy and focus, you know, it's not so much, it's not muscle anymore. It's not, not competing or training for anything at the moment. So if I can do things to really target fat loss, improve energy efficiency, and also throw in the occasional mental challenge, uh, that's exciting to me. And those are reasons why I might consider altering my carbohydrate intake before a workout. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think the whole bodybuilding world is fascinating and there's so many, nutritional nuggets that have come for that but really training for some type of bodybuilding competition or to have some type of physique with a certain percentage of fat is so different from what the average person is looking for yes so those messages sometimes can be maybe helpful but also misleading oh i couldn't agree more you hit the nail on the head yeah what are some of your go-to Let's go through the day. I don't know if you eat breakfast, but breakfast we'll start with. What are some of your favorites? Yeah, so to be honest with you, I've been eating the same meal for at least two years now. I, I go through <laughs> phases, and they typically last one to two years. And I do – I eat breakfast, if you will, but I'm someone who's up typically at 4.40 in the morning. I don't eat until oh, wow. about 9 or 9.30, so still breakfast time but much later. And my go-to has been a whey protein-based pudding where I'll mix – you know protein, water, a little sea salt in there. I'll add dark chocolate, oats, and or banana. I'll add maybe some peanut butter and then whatever nuts and seeds I have on hand, chia seeds, and then either walnuts, cashews, or pecans. Again, whatever's in my cabinet. And that's just this big protein pudding to start the day that also coincidentally serves as my pre-workout meal as well. 
I think I've seen pictures of that on social media. You post you post that sometimes, right? Yeah, a lot. And of course, there's always a lot of coffee in the morning too. <laughs> oh yes, of course. <laughs> what about for lunch? What are some of your go-tos? So my go-to is always what I like to call my big ass salad. I take a mixing mm. bowl, not a regular bowl, and just put as many handfuls of this, that, and the other from the vegetable department that I can. And then there's always a lean protein associated with that, typically like a London broil, flank steak, ground turkey, or pork tenderloin. And then I always have a uh, an oatmeal, oatmeal with a banana and typically either a peanut butter or almond butter, I would say four or five days of the week as well. And if it's not one of those, it's because I've got freshly cooked rice or quinoa right there instead. Uh, uh, I just have to give a shout out to the salad the mixing bowl for salads that's uh-huh. such a game changer yes oh yeah <laughs> I never want to eat a salad out of a small bowl or off of a plate I hate salads on plates yeah it's the worst <laughs> it's the worst if we ordered these I mean they are mixing bowls they're these metal stainless steel mixing bowls from Amazon uh-huh. and they're huge and it's just so much nicer to be able to toss everything around with the dressing and you know you don't feel cramped with your salad you can get a bunch of stuff in there it's filling it's just a huge game changer if somebody hasn't converted to that yet highly highly recommend yes if you take anything from this conversation take yeah. that please <laughs> yeah 100% no, ignore everything else we've said <laughs> buy yourself a mixing bowl or use one you already have put a salad in it it will change your life what about do you are you a snacker do you have any snacks you stick to i am actually quite regimented these days so just three times per day i and i try and i actually share this messaging a lot with those i work with try to break away from differentiating meal versus snack so that again kind of going back to the good versus bad food that way we don't pigeonhole any certain foods that become off limits at a particular time of day just because it's 3 p.m why can't you have you know ground turkey, rice, and a salad. So um, for me, it's still three meals per day. I like to view every time I eat as rather than a meal, just an opportunity to refuel or fuel myself. And usually right after lunch, which served as my post-workout meal, I'm heading into dinner, you know, four or five hours later. Got it. And what about dinners? I'm always just looking for new ideas of things to make, honestly. This so, is a selfish uh, question. <laughs> I am guilty. and I will be very transparent of, of Mr. Simplicity. I very oh, much yeah. like to cook a couple lean proteins to start the week. And I have I buy oatmeal in 10-pound increments. So there's always a plenty of that. But lately, I'll say in January, I, I received a, or I guess December, a juicer for Christmas. And I've been having a lot of fun with that, just throwing in different combinations of fruits and vegetables and having that with dinner. But dinner also always has a lean protein um some type of vegetable I'm eating, and then usually a good amount of fat as well. I would say the most common meal I have is an omelet or egg scramble base with the side of the juice I make. Mm. I think simplicity cannot be overstated, honestly. It's like yes. consistency, simplicity. Some of these words, I feel like you say them a lot. I say them a lot. I don't know if everybody's saying them as much as they should be, but yeah, keep it simple. You don't have to make crazy recipes on a Tuesday night. If you want to, great. Awesome. But is that causing you more stress or not, you know, you have to be kind of honest with yourself. Would that be better to save for maybe a Saturday or a Sunday? And is that actually not help serving you during the week? And could it be a more simple plan to follow would be, you know, Bingo. better? Yeah. And really it can just be vegetable protein, maybe some grains. I mean, 
the simplest plates are what we stick to around here or salad or mixing bowls, you know. We don't discriminate against mixing bowls, as we said. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful for all of the wisdom you shared with my audience today. And I ask each of my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Oh, I love this question. So for me, everything, in if we make health the umbrella term here, everything can be traced back to the origin of a feeling. So for me, and it's an investment in how you want to feel. And for every one of us, there is a different avenue that we need either more help, support, accountability in to really check the box of obtaining the feeling that we want to have, that's lasting, strong feeling, whether it's exercise, nutrition, mindset, you know, financial, whatever area of life you need the help. Um, so for me, and it's an investment in feeling as the very best version of yourself. Mm, I love that. I think you would enjoy, and for listeners as well, um, an episode I did with Dr. Jed Brewer, who's a mindset and habit expert. And he talks a ton about connecting with different feelings of things and really getting rooted in those, the very specifics of each feeling to help you stay motivated long-term and, you know, you connect to the feeling of a workout when you're done so that mm. the next time you're going to work out and you don't feel like it in that moment, you can go back to those specific things you felt the prior time. And it's just kind of this cycle that perpetuates. Um, but I love, yeah, I love how you connect everything to that feeling. Cause that matters so much more, I think, than the number on a scale. Boom. <laughs> ever exactly. Would. Well, thank you so much for being here. Truly, truly appreciate your time. I am going to link to a couple of things you mentioned. It's the F-Lux, right? The thing you downloaded? Yep, F.Lux. F.Lux, great. And then I would also love to link to where everybody can find you on social media and, and beyond. Absolutely. So the best place to connect with me is on Instagram. And my handle is at Paul Salter Coaching. And that's where I think everyone can really get to just get to know me. I'm very active in my stories. And if my messaging resonates with you, then hey, let's have a conversation, you know, talk, we'll talk about anything and everything, but you'll get a first glance about who I truly am. And you'll get a lot of a dog action from my dog, Al, as well. So it's a win-win. <laughs> Awesome. I love that. I love the streamlined. Find me on Instagram. Let's connect there. Keep it simple, right? Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for being here, Paul. Really enjoyed our conversation and looking forward to staying connected with you. Yes. Likewise, Brooke. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.